0: Welcome back. My name is Chris Gosselin from Australian Fund Monitors. Normally in our manager interviews, we talk to a single manager about how their fund has performed, what they're investing in and what their current themes are. Today we thought we'd take a different tack and ask a number of managers what their opinions are specifically about China. We have three experienced managers, each of whom is either positive about China or, in one case, and I have to say, I sit on the same side of that fence. Is concerned about China, maybe politically, but generally concerned. So, join with me as we introduce you to our three managers. Thank you. So, gentlemen, welcome. Uh, the idea today is that we explore China and whether China actually represents a great opportunity uh, at uh, at the current time, or whether the risk is greater than the opportunity. Uh, So maybe we'll just go briefly around the room and if you could quickly introduce yourselves, um, maybe starting with Robert.
1: Yeah, Uh, hi, Chris, thanks for this. Hello, Jack, hello, uh, Alex. Um, My name is Robert Swift, I work at Delft Partners. It's a Sydney headquartered global asset management business in operation for almost 10 years now. My particular expertise happens to be the Asia Pacific, including Japan. Um, I don't think that China is what it was, but it certainly remains an investable market, is our
2: um, opening statement.
0: Okay, Jack.
2: Thanks, Chris, and really looking forward to the panel. Uh, Jack Dwyer, I run Conduit Capital. We invest globally in shares um, with a focus on Millennials and Gen Z, who will represent 70% of the world's population by 2030, Um, have been fortunate to spend a lot of time looking at China over the past 15 years and on the ground. Um, We think recent developments and volatility present an opportunity and is part of a broader strategic plan that Beijing has that many in the West may be misunderstanding. Uh, so look forward to the discussion.
0: Alex, uh, you take a slightly different view, um, as as I might do as well. I try and keep my biases out of it. But um, as the professional fund manager, uh, could you just introduce yourself and, and give us an overview
3: of where you come from? Sure. Thanks, Chris, uh, Robert, and Jack. I'm Alex Pollock. I'm the CIO of Loftus Peak uh, Global. Um, disruption investor, invest in disruptive businesses like, uh, you know, Amazon and Roku and Apple. Um, yeah, so we, we don't, we, we have been holders of China stocks, actually, for the eight-ish, nine years that we've been investing other people's money and have done incredibly well out of it. But actually, and and even now, it's the valuations for China look really, really attractive, except that the the you know the one party state uh, the chinese the china communist party has actually tilted the transaction so that more of what would generally go to shareholders is now going into the coffers of the of china inc so to speak for distribution to the chinese people and it's this and it's the the shift in that equation from the shareholder back to the Communist Party and the people of China, that has made the economics of investing in China unattractive for us.
0: Okay. So I think we have the scenario there. I'm not a fund manager by anyone's means, um, but I sort of share the concerns about China. That might balance up the, uh, the conversation or the debate a bit, but it's not really about me. But as a layman and as someone who looks on uh, the investable universe uh, we see the risks of China being considerable. Having said that, there could be some bias in there but from a political or geopolitical point of view, from my, uh, my uh, perspective. But maybe, Robert, you could expand on your views on China.
1: Um, sure, but will try to do so in a succinct fashion. I think the game has changed. I think that the uh, current uh, administration, Xi Jinping, has essentially gone back to Maoist the Maoist phrase, common prosperity, and that's meant as a serious redistribution of money. It's meant that companies have to toe the line and think about the way in which they remain or become more aligned with the party ideals. Common prosperity, of course, was something that that Chairman Mao talked about. And in fact, when Deng Xiaoping took China into the world's capitalist um, economies with his phrase about getting gloriously rich, he also went on to repeat the common prosperity. So to Jack's point, I think this is a longer term theme of the Chinese capitalist model. And this uh, state intervention to reduce what is clearly growing inequality and growing inequality of opportunity is actually to be expected of a society that is left leaning. And as we go through this webinar, hopefully we can talk about some of the things the Biden administration is doing because they are not too dissimilar, and I don't want to equate the Chinese repression of free speech with what is happening in the USA and indeed in Europe, but we are seeing this greater government intervention everywhere, and that means China is not very different from the challenges posed by other markets at the moment.
2: Jack, your comments on that. Thanks, Chris. Uh, to pick up where Robert left off, I mean, today, Boris Johnson increased taxes in the UK, <laughs> uh, and Corporate taxes in the US are some of the lowest in the world. And the last election, it was a core policy of the now president to hike taxes. What has the Chinese government done amongst a broad range of regulatory developments in the last months, which I would add, uh, consistent with an increasing regulatory framework since Xi came in in 2011-2012, um, except that more people are just focusing on it now when you get a share price reaction. I think Robert's point is absolutely spot on. There is increasing regulatory developments globally and China is no different. And what the government is actually doing, if you look at the tea leaves, is saying, okay, do we need our smartest people building more food delivery apps? You know, do we need younger people spending seven hours a day playing video games or do we want to double down and invest in strategic areas of the future? So many of these policies are not dissimilar to what other governments and democracies are discussing in other jurisdictions. But when you get a share price reaction uh, that was a you know, trillion dollar fall, which for context is equal to the aggregate inflows in global equities between 1996 and 2020, just to think about that, you know, huge amounts of money, predominantly driven by foreigners who do not live in China or have never lived there. Um, we think that that perhaps people are under misunderstanding what they are actually trying to do and that we will see more governments take a, similar approach to regulation and to tax in time. And perhaps the Chinese who are uh, you know, ahead of the curve on this, they were ahead of the curve when it came to reducing QE post-COVID, diametrically opposed to the US. They're ahead of the curve in um, doubling down on high-tech manufacturing and R&D as a share of GDP is reflecting that. And maybe the regulatory piece when it comes to big technology is just another um, iteration of that. Uh, movement as it looks 5, 10, 30 years out.
0: Isn't there a bit of a difference between regulating the economy as a whole and going to the extent of regulating whether you can wear an earring on television or whether you're a a, a city presenter or whether you can watch uh, video games for for seven hours a day, which, by the way, I think you find most Australian and Western parents would be absolutely ecstatic if they could do that. But in the West we're living in a democracy and that's one thing that's seriously missing in China and doesn't that affect the whole argument on this that you never know what might happen next and it's absolutely at the whim of someone who's a chairman for life rather than a prime minister or a president for three, four
3: or five years? Um, Well, that's exactly right. I mean, I I take Robert and Jack's points about um, you know, other countries as well, rebalancing the equation between the shareholders and the country itself. This isn't just regulation, this is policing. It's correct to, to say, I believe, that the Communist Party now has uh, effectively boardroom representation at every big board in the China, uh, amongst Chinese corporates. They are effectively uh, represented. And arguably, they actually have more power than the chief executive or the board itself. And what this does, the issue with this, if you say it quickly, is, yeah, no big deal. So the Chinese government's involved, who cares? But the issue with this is once you start getting not just regulation but policing, it's an innovation killer. That's the problem with this. You can't kind of half do this job that G is attempting to do to sort of rein in the animal spirits of people in Chinese corporations who want to become rich and who will break a few rules and and innovate in order to do it. You can't do this if the actual wish itself is repressed at the Chinese government level. And that is what is happening with respect to what China is doing at board level and more generally uh, to its corporations globally. Yes, what Jack says, they're very committed into getting their technology up and running, but again, they're a number of years, generations behind um, and they've allowed themselves to get dragged into this trade war with the United States at a point which they're not actually ready to compete effectively on, those, on that score itself. Anyway, back to the same main point, it stymies um, innovation and that's the problem with it.
0: So Robert and Jack, who'd like to take that one on first?
1: I'm happy to do so. I think that any time you have more centrally directed or government directed capital allocation, innovation will tend to drop. I think that's the whole point about having small government. But I think the trend to big government is not limited to China. I think you're seeing a number of government interventions in the West. I mean, the whole of the ECB euro pretense—the the vendor finance Ponzi scheme that is essentially German goods being sold on German finance to the rest of Europe, backed by the ECB printing money, um, that's essentially state intervention uh, of a magnitude we've never seen before. So I don't think the Chinese alone, I really think the free speech, the president for life, I think those are very worrying things. But anybody who buys a share that's on a PE of 30 or 40 with increasing government control is going to do a lot less well than someone who buys a share on a low PE where they can align themselves with the strategic direction of that country's economy, such as in the provision of basic pipes, China Lasso, or in the provision even of of IT, such as a company called Chinasoft, you're gonna do a lot better if you buy stocks on low PEs where you do align yourself with what's happening. And essentially in, in, in in a simple phrase, there's the expression, don't fight the Fed. Well, in this case, we may need to learn to don't fight the party when you're investing in China. And we think there's plenty of money to be made on this um, revolution. And that systemic risk of greater government allocation is everywhere now.
0: Jack, is there a situation where possibly we're looking at it from an outsider's point of view and there are two economies in China You know, where you've got, you know, 1.3, 1.5 billion people, which is an economy in itself, and it's still growing. Um, and those people are still coming towards urbanisation and the and the middle class. So should we be looking at it purely as China for China's economy, or are we biased by the external view of where we sit in
2: the world? It's a really interesting question, uh, Chris. I mean, you've got four white blokes um, waxing lyrically about China, you know, sitting in Australia and sort of And then you've got many Western commentators who are telling you their views about China who haven't actually spent time there. So I think it's important we, you know, there's some level of intellectual honesty there. Um, A few points, you know, there is a division within China, as you articulated, let's just take urban and rural divide. If you take someone who earns a rural income, but uh, their income versus an urban uh, person is 80% less on many metrics, right? And if if you're sitting in Xi Jinping's seat and you're saying, okay, I can bring another 100 to 200 million people into the middle class, that matters a lot for your popularity and for what you're trying to do. I think the other point is that we need to be careful not to group China in one bucket. To your point, Chris, the Communist Party is very different to The Chinese population. Just because someone has the same passport, it doesn't mean they share exactly the same views. And let's not forget that many Western companies have been enormous beneficiaries of the rising Chinese consumer over the last 10 to 15 years, and a third of the S&P's earnings are offshore, of which a lot of that comes from Asia. And I would really sort of test the point that China's falling behind in technology and that intervention from a state, Stein, is that actually what we've seen and the data shows this is that innovation from state-owned enterprises in China has been very poor. And the government recognises that it's the private sector which drives the innovation and drives a lot of the growth. And Liu Hui, one of the most senior officials officials in China a few days ago, came out and said, we recognise this, we support the private sector, and he's been put in charge to drive the semiconductor initiative, interestingly, we even see this at a more micro level. If you look at electric vehicles, the Chinese are three years ahead of their objectives in producing electric vehicles. What? Why is that? One of the reasons is because they are so focused on the security of supply, and rare earths is a very good example. And you could, you could, one could rightly argue that countries like the United States and other Western democracies have not allocated the uh, same amount of time and uh, financial capital to secure these industries of the future in a way that private enterprises have in China and also supported by the state. So I think it's very difficult to generalize about what's going on. And uh, to Robert's point, if you actually turn over the stones and do the work, you see a big dislocation from a valuation perspective in assets listed in a Western democracy versus an asset listed in China and perhaps therein lies the opportunity.
0: So is it also fair to say that a lot of the rhetoric that comes out of the Chinese government, Xi Jinping or, or uh, his uh, his underlings, is really there for local consumption, Chinese consumption, and they really couldn't give... Uh, I was going to say stuff, but, yeah, probably a stuff is a, is a good way to say it, what the rest of the world thinks because their issue is they've got a hell of a lot of people at home and they need to keep them happy and fed.
2: Yeah, I, I, I'll jump in on that quickly, Chris. I I firmly believe that's true. I mean, if one reads the China Daily, it's so different to what one will read in the Wall Street Journal or Financial Times, you know, and... um the China Daily has a readership of a billion people and the Wall Street Journal has a readership that's located outside of China. So controlling the press uh, is very important. And if you're a communist party official, you keep your job by keeping the masses content. And we've seen, you know, many examples of this throughout history. And we heard similar um, arguments and rhetoric during the corruption campaign that, you know, it was the end of spending in China. I mean, if you look at some of the earnings of companies and what's been achieved over that time, luxury stocks are up five to seven times. You know, we've seen enormous automobile demand and that faction of the corruption ca- campaign has actually enabled uh, China to, to power on in ways that many thought was impossible. So uh, perhaps too many of us in the West uh spend the time really trying to understand what the message from Beijing to the populace in that country might be and what the intended and unintended consequences. uh, Can I jump in there, Jack, and just say something? Of course. Do, Do you think the people in Hong Kong
3: are feeling relaxed and comfortable? What message is Xi Jinping sending to them?
2: For that matter, what do the people of Taiwan think? I think I, I think they've. Do I think people in Hong Kong are feeling rela- relaxed? I think the answer is no. Um, let you know. Let's look at the numbers. Um, Thirty years ago, Hong Kong accounted for around ninety-five percent of mainland finance. It's probably close to three or four percent now, right? the The ownership of real estate in Hong Kong has very has a mainland skew bias, uh, and we've seen obviously political handovers occur in, you know, in more recent times. Uh, I think it's, I, 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 I echo so those. So the, the assumption
3: of private property, that's effectively what they're doing with, with Alibaba and Tencent. They're saying, it's, look, we own more of this than you think we own. They're assuming private property. This is not good for innovation.
2: But, but Alex, I think it's naive to suggest that the Chinese state didn't have a significant role prior to the last three months. I I think there's enough examples to show that that's not the case. And to suggest that because there's competition or increasing influence and that ultimately destroys innovation, I'm just not sure is true when we see so much innovation um, continuing to occur. I think there are other things at play
0: here, aren't there, gentlemen? I and mean, yes, innovation. I would personally, for all my views on China and the politics of China, I'm certainly not suggesting innovation is, is going to wither and die anything but, uh, whether it's innovation with, uh, uh, with technology and, and IP that pinch from overseas or otherwise. Um, the, the point is, surely when it comes down to it, that you're buying assets when we really come down to it you're buying assets at a price that they're either attractive because they're a good long-term investment or they're risky based on what's going to happen and alex has brought up two of the things that i think are paramount when people think about it hong kong's done and dusted but taiwan uh, is is yet to unfold
3: when you buy a, a share in a Hong Kong, a Chinese listed company, you don't actually buy a share. You buy a share in a thing called a, a variable interest entity. It's a, you, buy a, you buy a contractual li- uh, op- opportunity and a contractual option for that VIE, which is Cayman Islands based, I believe, to then go and buy a share in a Chinese company. You don't actually own anything when you buy. Buy a share in a Chinese company because it's you, aren't, you have a call right over the VIE. That is the extent to which I mean you may think that you're buying a share and that therefore that gives you a, the right to some level of earnings or dividends etc etc. That is that that kind of could be construed loosely as the position in the last five or ten or twenty years, but actually Xi Jinping and the and the Politburo has made it abundantly clear that the rules are what they make them, and that's a complete that's a complete uh, chain, game changer.
1: If, if I may, Chris, yes. right? just jump in on that. No, that. that that is true. I think the VIEs are risky. I think anyone buying, you know, a listed Chinese stock in, you know, via New York is is probably taking on more risk perhaps than they need to. I think you can mitigate that risk anyway. I think that typically regulation tends to focus on the very large companies. It's what is visible to the politicians. And so I think you can immunize yourself against capricious regulation by going towards smaller companies, companies that don't sort of offend by virtue of their size and their growth rate and their wealth creation for the few. Um,
3: so, respect, so unsuccessful companies?
1: Well, there, there are some very small successful companies that are growing quite quickly. And I don't want to get into an advert of what we own in our Asian small cap, but but I, but I might if Chris lets me. But I think this respect with respect to equity holders getting stiffed and and capricious regulation, I think bond investors in China have long cynically had the view, correctly cynically had the view, that they are going to get stiffed. And at the moment, we've got China Evergrande, which is an extremely highly levered, highly geared property developer that's been waiting to go bankrupt for years. And there's $80 billion of debt, and the foreign bondholders will probably get stiffed relative to the locals. And the bondholders, as always, are ahead of the equity investors in realizing there are some unique risks to investing in China, the tails, technically speaking, the tails are fatter. And I think one of the things we are going to have to get used to as equity investors are fatter tails in the outcomes of investing in Chinese equities. But it doesn't mean that you haven't made good money in the bond markets in China. You're just going to have to accept that it's not quite the same thing that it was before. And rather than, however, rather than China becoming more like us, we are actually increasingly becoming more like China. Capricious regulation is happening through executive orders in the USA at quite an alarming rate.
3: You are a student of history, Robert. Do you think yes? Do you think that what the CCP is doing right now represents a step change in the level of government intervention and control? Yes, relative. Absolutely,
1: particularly to large companies. And I think the repression of, of free speech, I think, is particularly unhealthy. Um, I think that the hollowing out of Hong Kong, with a lot of people now leaving Hong Kong, those who can, I think that's not very good for the Hong Kong uh, role as the the New York City of, of, of China. Um, so there are some things that they've done to damage their longer-term prospects. With respect to employment, I think the Chinese know well enough that employment via trade growth or current account surpluses is critical. And so they're not in my opinion, gonna go much further from here than they have done in generally pissing everybody off. Um, And that's because their employment uh, is driven by mercantilist policies that actually favor employment and create employment opportunities in export-oriented industries. And I think consequently, one needs to distinguish between large companies that are typically contravening what the party wants to do, and companies that are essentially getting behind longer-term objective. It's, it's a moral question, I think, much more in, in many ways than an economic question.
0: So let's just have a look at the economics, because a lot of what we've been talking about is uh, philosophical, whether we like the way the Chinese government goes about things and how they control things. And You can argue uh, on, on the, the, the relative merits of that, and you can argue whether there's as much control of the corporate sector in the US or the UK a lot. But what about when it comes down to the economics of what is the discount that you would put, if any, on buying assets that are either Chinese assets or leveraged to China? Because we've got to look at two sides of the sort of share price side of thing. You're buying an asset. It could be a, a, a Western, for want of a better term, company that is heavily exposed to China, or it could be a Chinese company uh, that is exposed to to the West. But where do you put the discount? I mean, if you believe there's a risk, then how much of a discount do you want to be able to take that risk? And equally, as Jack has said, he thinks the the sell-off has been overdone and there's terrific opportunity there. Um, We use... so, So where's that?
3: We use Professor De Modren from from Stern School's uh, country risk premium for China and have done for seven years ever since we started, as we do for every other country in the world. And I think the country risk premium for China has been around 4%. And as a result of what has happened in the last few weeks, we've effectively doubled it. And that has significantly reduced the target prices. As Jack, I think is about to say, of course, and the price has fallen so much that you could probably make that heightened discount rate hurdle to get where you want to go. But actually, I think it's a discount rate that's going to continue to surprise on the downside.
0: But but then it presumably comes down to whether you think, uh, the as you do, that the risk is greater than the opportunity or, as Jack does, is to say the opportunity uh, makes the risk worthwhile. Jack, would you like to put a comment in on that.
2: Yes, Chris. I, look, I think um, we're all global investors. We, we, we search the world for opportunities and it's as much about risk management as about identifying opportunities, right? And we have all the data tells us that investors are heavily exposed to the same companies in the US, you know, and, and perhaps there's very good reason for that and maybe that continues for much longer. You know, as we, we look at our investors' capital, and we're fiduciaries of those cap- of that capital. We kind of say, here are companies in other jurisdictions that might be a bit hairy, but that are growing at attractive rates or have products that are in demand or in- are innovating in-, in ways that are really exciting. Um, and we've had a significant market dislocation event where valuations have, the differential between the US has gone to its most extreme level, plus you've had some of the biggest outflows we've ever seen. Now, China, like any jurisdiction, is not perfect, and I'm not advocating that at all. I'm just sort of questioning, should we be asking what could go right? And when you've got that supportive uh, backdrop from evaluation and a positioning perspective, we really think it warrants uh further investigation and and you know and deploying some of that capital. Uh so that's what we've done. And and you know, there are always risks, and there are risks in any market, and this and this country is no different, but valuations at a point, positioning at a point, uh, uh I think there needs to be some level of thinking beyond the next three, six months. Um, and that and that's what we've done, and that's why I think there's an opportunity there.
0: So it's not really the purpose of this particular session, but you would probably be arguing that the risks of investing in the US or elsewhere are currently greater now because of the valuations and the, the headwinds that, that the West or the US might be facing.
2: Yeah, I think it you know, going back to what I said earlier, Chris, I think one has to be very careful not to put everything in the same bucket just because of the stock market country it's listed in. But let's be clear you know, corporate tax in the U S is, is very low talks of it, of it going higher. Uh, we've got unlimited quantitative easing, which may be slowing sometime soon. We've got valuations, which on any metric are the highest or, you know, at lofty peaks, uh, maybe that continues. And we've got extreme positioning amplified by a millennial and Gen Z investor who is, who is pushing this even further. So, uh, You know, we sit back and we say, okay, look what's happened to Chinese listed assets, right? And one has to be careful, just because a a company is listed on Exchange X, it doesn't mean it it doesn't have exposure. So we can look at a a luxury or a consumer business listed in Europe or the United States, and actually China is its growth engine, but it might trade at a multiple of 30 to 40% higher than one listed in Hong Kong. And one has to say, okay, from a risk management perspective, uh, does it really make sense to buy that European or US proxy when you get much of the same exposure, yet it's listed in a different jurisdiction? So we are very underweight the United States. And in particular, we don't own any large US technology companies. They're great businesses, but we just think there are better opportunities elsewhere at this stage.
0: Well, I think Alex would have uh, different views on that, although I, I think he'd be very happy for you to give him a plug as Lofty Peaks. Um, it was almost there. Um, well done. I'm not sure if it was intentional or otherwise. Uh, but I, I think we're going to leave it there because we've covered it. I think it's pretty obvious that uh, that uh, Robert and Jack think the risk is worth um, the, the opportunity, even if it's not widespread or across the board, there will be pockets of opportunity that are worthwhile. And I think it's fair to say that, uh, that Alex takes a slightly different view, and I'm biased anyway, so who cares? Um, but what we might do is perhaps revisit this um, uh, at a later stage and perhaps uh, see who's been right and who's been wrong and see uh, whether everyone's still standing and everyone's still available. In the meantime, gentlemen, I'd like to thank you very much, unless you have any final shots uh, to fire.
3: No, my magazine is empty.
0: Uh, Jack, Robert, Alex, thank you very much indeed. It's been a pleasure to have you on board, and we look forward to seeing you again soon. Stay Thanks safe. All.